Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, (laughs) Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for Andy Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Notre Dame couldn't overcome its flaws in a 24-13 loss to Cincinnati on Saturday. The struggles that we have seen from the Irish this season finally seem to catch up with them uh, before getting an opportunity to regroup. With a bye week, Notre Dame will head into a hostile environment at Virginia Tech this Saturday. Um, sort of naturally after a loss, there's been a lot of big picture reflecting on Notre Dame's program from the outside. Um, following Saturday's defeat to the Bearcats beyond sort of beyond what the Irish are capable of the rest of the season. People want to know where are the Irish heading in future seasons. And uh, Eric and I want to talk a little bit about both of those things. So we invited on our old friend, Steve Wolfong, director of recruiting for 24 seven sports to talk to Notre Dame football and recruiting with us. Steve, thanks for joining us. Gentlemen, what's going on, man? Let's get some juice going in here. It's South Bend. I love being on in the Notre Dame market, man. Hopefully people I know from home are listening. I'm sure they are. <laughs> well, we appreciate you joining us as always, Steve. Uh, the, the first one, I would just sort of sort of punt it to you and see where you want to take this. What was sort of your biggest t- takeaway from Notre Dame's loss to Cincinnati on Saturday? Well, I think that they beat themselves in that game. You know, I mean, you, you turn over the ball in the end zone. Uh, on the uh, first series. Um, I think that, you know, you have Chris Tyree uh, fumble away uh, a ball. Th- that led to Cincinnati points too, right? Yeah, yep, a field goal. So those – you lose points on the one and then you give up points on the other. Then I think – I mean, you the, – the play where Kyle Hamilton got beat, I guess, is what they'll say – I mean, hell, nine times out of ten, that's a pick. That ball was underthrown. He did the right thing. So there was some bad luck there. Um, and at the same time, man, Cincinnati's a really good football team. You know, you look at their corners. Those are two NFL guys out there, including a first-rounder. Um, and, and and they got some NFL talent on the defensive line. Their quarterback's going to get drafted high. They got some playmakers and size at wide out with Pierce and, 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 and Wiley and um, you know, obviously they got the Alabama transfer at running back. That's a very good football team. And I think if Notre Dame plays mistake free, uh, they win, but they didn't. And that's, you know, they didn't, they didn't win the ball game. And I also think that, 
you know, obviously why I'm here, I think that their offense is a little bit limited um, with what they can do. And so that hurts them in a game against a really good opponent like Cincinnati. Okay, Steve. So what kind of inspired me to ask you to follow Aaron Taylor from last week to be our guest this week? Because he talked offensive line, and I know that there's a lot of that chatter was a thread that you started on the Irish Illustrated message board that I thought was pretty compelling about the quarterbacks. And where I want to start with that is when you look at this current situation, I don't think any of the quarterbacks are in either a match for the offensive line or they're not experienced enough or they're not talented enough to take Notre Dame to where it wants to go. And that's a national championship, at least this year. H- how did Notre Dame get itself in that position with its quarterback room? And I do think Brian Kelly and Notre Dame can win a national championship. And I think Brian Kelly has Notre Dame close. I mean, they're, they're a top six team. Uh, um, they're, they're a team that um, is in the conversation now. They're recruiting at a high level in so many position rooms. Um, the, the defensive class in 2022 is off the charts. I think that these wideouts that they're bringing in here in, in 2022 on top of what they had signed in 2021 when you're talking about Tobias Merriweather and C.J. Williams coming in uh, alongside the likes of, of Colsey and, and Styles. I think Notre Dame's receiver room could be as good as it's been uh, uh, in the last few years uh, um, down the road. And, and uh, uh, I just think that at the quarterback position, Notre Dame needs to recruit to the same standard that they're basically recruiting every other position. And I, I think that in this one game in particular, it kind of caught up to them that they haven't been landing elite guys at the position. That doesn't mean that they still can't have a good year and go 10 and two or maybe 11 and one and play in a great bowl game. Or, I mean, the college football playoff is still there if they can run the table and make some things. I know that's a long shot, but I'm just saying like this team is set up to be good for a while. Like the the way they've recruited, the way they develop. Um, and, And so for me, I just looked at the quarterback room, which is obviously the the most important place um, to that you have to address. Uh, if they can get that room get that room right, I think that Notre Dame can hoist a crystal ball. Okay, so I guess where I look at this is um, a couple things. One is, are they not getting the type of quarterbacks? they need because they're not aiming high enough in recruiting to this point. I know 2023 is different in the cycle, but have they not aimed high enough or are they swinging and missing? Do you think? Well, if you look at the way that Notre Dame's recruiting the, the, the position in 2023, like I, I love the offers that they have out. They've gotten a lot of good players on campus. You know, they've had Dante Moore on campus a few times. They had uh, Nico Iamaleva 
from California uh, on campus. Jackson Arnold's a guy who's really making a name for himself in Texas that Notre Dame's in on early. Avery Johnson, I think, could be a, a championship-level quarterback out of Kansas. Notre Dame's got to campus already. They're building a good report with him. I think that the infrastructure of the way that they're recruiting quarterback in 2023 is – I think that Notre Dame is kind of – I, I, I would say that based on the way they're recruiting the quarterback position in 2023, I think they've probably self-assessed the way that they've recruited it in the past. And now they're in good position to maybe go out and land one of these guys that they find elite in 2023. And these are guys that, of course, we have ranked high as well. Steve, Steve while we're on the recruiting topic, I, I found it very fascinating um, that last week it was reported by Tom Lloyd, 24-7 Sports and some others, that Notre Dame has been recruiting LSU five-star quarterback commit Walker Howard and trying to get him to campus. What did you think of Notre Dame sort of doing something like that? Is that something you feel like Notre Dame has done anything like that in the past? And is that also maybe another sign that they're, they're sort of reckoning with the, the ability that they need to get at that quarterback position? I love it. You got, I mean, I love it. And I, I wonder if they're chipping away at some other guys that maybe aren't in the news right now. And if, I think they should be turning over every rock they can to find a potential difference maker at quarterback because their running back rooms as healthy as it's been in a long time. Like I said, the receiver room is on the uptick. The tight end room's always great. Uh, um, and you have one of the best players in college football there now guaranteed to be back next year. The old line is loaded with blue chippers, guys at other programs coveted. I know that it's not playing to the cohesion and level of play that uh, people have gone accustomed to in South Bend, but I don't think it's because of lack of quality of people that they've recruited. Um, and then on the defensive side, um, they haven't recruited this kind of talent, um, in my opinion, uh, across the board. Um, I, I I just love the way Notre, Notre Dame's played great defense the last couple of years. And I love that. I think that's going to continue to be the hallmark of, of this program with the guys uh, that they're recruiting on defense. So quarterback is how can I, I think that there needs to be all hands on deck. How can we improve this quarterback room? And if we, if we need to flip a guy, we need to take two. Um, you know, I think that there's a good quarterback in state that could, be a difference maker for them and Brady Allen. Now, Brady Allen's committed to Purdue right now. He's having, he's got 27 touchdowns and zero interceptions this year uh, as a senior. Notre Dame had him in camp a couple of years ago. He wasn't good enough to play at Notre Dame then. So, uh, but he's developed. And, and so with that, the, there's other quarterbacks across the country that have probably developed. And uh, I would think that Notre Dame is looking into those guys too, who are better. Who did we maybe not like as a junior? That we that we really like now that's really developed. Uh, um, who are got because I think that um, you know Notre Dame. That's the position that I think will put them over the top, and and, and with the way that they're recruiting all the other positions and the way that their programs built from a strength and conditioning and player development standpoint. I mean, people, Notre Dame is one of the best defensive line coaches in college football. Mike Elston. I mean, he that doesn't get talked about enough, but the amount of guys that he has in the NFL. And knowing who this program's got a couple on the team right now, and then seeing 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 who's coming in uh, in this 2022 class, uh, uh, guys that, that I think are are, are going to be difference makers on the defensive line for them uh, down the road. Um, I, I, it's 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 an exciting time, and and so at quarterback, how can we address 
and, and instantly make us better. Well, certainly getting two true freshmen, Steve Angeli, one and another that can come in and push. You continue to develop Tyler Buckner, who they're obviously comfortable with athletically, but they're not ready to let him throw the ball. Maybe this is a different conversation in two months. Maybe Tyler Buckner has a coming out party as a thrower at some point here down the road, or, or, or maybe I'm undervaluing Drew Pine and, and his ability uh, to lead this football team or, or Brendan Clark comes back from injury. But I, I think that um, they also could look into the portal and uh, um, who's a guy that um, makes us a championship level football team right away. I'll follow up with that portal thought in, in that if you take one two years in a row, what does that do to kind of the mindset of Pine and Buckner and also other kids you're recruiting? Let's say Walker Howard's really interested. Uh, and we all know Ed Orgeron suddenly is not in a good stable position with his job, but let's say, let's say Walker Howard's interested Buckner improves and drew pine you know finishes out the year as a starter what does that what kind of message does that send to them how do you kind of massage that with them if you're going to make that move well you only go to the portal if you're first you're getting a guy that you think is a championship caliber player or or at least do do you think jack cone is well i didn't think so backup but um notre dame you know he, he had coach Kelly has to be a little ruthless with his roster here. You know, I mean, this is Notre university of Notre Dame. All right. Maybe you're not playing on the field, but you still get a chance to graduate with this degree here. You know, it's not all a loss, but I, I would say for the younger guys, Buckner's just a sophomore. So he's still got time in the hopper to develop quarterbacks that you sign are 18 or 19 years old. They're true freshmen. You know, and, and, and so you go to the portal and you get a guy that you think at the very least adds competition to your room. Um, but it, it's the it's the room where I think that Notre Dame has the most runway to get better. I, I just think yeah. that that's the room that's going to take them to the championship. And it's easy to say that it's hard to get the guy to come in and, and do that. But when you look at the teams that have won the national championship recently, they've done it with first round draft picks and, and the teams that are having a chance to win it, like a legit chance to win it. They have first round draft picks under center. Also. Steve, I wanted to double back a little bit about Drew Pine and Tyler Buckner and get your thoughts on them as recruits. I, I know myself personally, I've been more impressed with Drew Pine in these last two games than I thought I would be. I sort of, I'd kind of written him off a little bit um, and wasn't, wasn't in love with him as a recruit. I didn't think he was a bad recruit. I I remember first watching his film and this was before Ian Book ended up being who Ian Book became as a college quarterback. I was like, well, this looks just like Ian Book to me. Uh, So that could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your, your outlook on Ian Book. But what did you think of him as a recruit? And then also Tyler Buckner, did you, did you think that Notre Dame going out and getting Tyler Buckner was like a move in the right direction? So the, the, the way we rank quarterbacks, you know, if you're, or just players in general, if you're a five-star, we think you're one of the top 32 players in the country with a good chance of being a first round pick four-star means we think you're, you have a great chance of playing in the NFL and based on where we rank you, if, if you rank 52, we think you're, you have a good chance of going in the second round and, and so on and so forth. So with Drew Pine, we ranked him as a three-star, a high three-star guy that we thought would be an impact player at a power five school at the position. But we questioned some of his traits 
that would maybe uh, uh, be the difference in him playing on Saturdays to, to playing on Sunday. And I'm not sure we've seen anything yet at Notre Dame to make us backtrack on those thoughts. With, with Tyler Buckner, uh, athletic, smart, um, um, good arm talent, um, but struggled in the camp setting going into his senior year, uh, throwing on air to be consistent and accurate. Um, and, and so he dominated small school ball in the state of California. I mean, I'm talking like the type of schools that LaVille would play. Um, <laughs> and, and LaVille for our national audience is a small <laughs> school in, the, in Indiana near us. Uh, and, and, but Notre Dame had him in camp, you know, and, and they and they went on him. And that was before he even played a varsity down of football. And then he got hurt the first game of his sophomore year um, and uh, came back as a junior and had an epic junior year against small school ball. And then he was going to transfer his senior year and, and, and play in a much bigger division, but then opted to enroll early at Notre Dame um, because of the pandemic. So he didn't play. In, in the spring. And I think that he's a guy that really could have benefited from uh, a senior year. Almost every quarterback can benefit from those three to 400 pass attempts, being the alpha on the field, directing traffic, being a leader, maybe even being dominant, just being a man amongst boys. You know, I think that Tyler really missed out on that. And here he is already playing as a true freshman at Notre Dame, despite that giving them an element. It's obvious Notre Dame uses him to stay ahead of the chains, stay on script, get a seven yard gain. We're in very manageable second down, third down, down to distances. They're mixing it up because their offense, um, you know, is struggling to get consistency with, with cone or, or, or what have you. So they're, they're having to be creative with all the pieces. And, and one of that element is bringing in Tyler Buckner, but they obviously haven't trusted him to throw the football yet. Maybe, Maybe that is something they're saving, um, or maybe it's something that he, as he continues to work on it, because it's not like he's just not working on it. You know, he can he can become serviceable to then being a difference maker at that position. But right now, you know, he hasn't answered any of those question marks on accuracy and, and, and those things that we had. Um, and, and I believe we may have had him ranked lower than our peers as well, which doesn't make us right. His story still developing and, 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 and being written and he's in control of that. Um, and Notre Dame's given him a chance, but I just think to, to, to go back to what we were talking about guys, um, Notre Dame, that's the room that they need to uh, continue to assess. How can we get better? How can we be creative in the way we're going to get better can we find another quarterback to take alongside Angeli that'll increase the competition in that room? Who knows, maybe even be a true freshman impact guy. Um, what's going to be in the portal? Because players in the portal should be very interested in Notre Dame. I mean, they're walking into a situation where you have a chance to win 12, 13 games with what they're going to bring back next year, playing the biggest ball games and really improve your NFL draft stock. So a transfer for portal quarterback should love the situation at Notre Dame. You're going to play in front of an offensive line that was heavily recruited uh, a place. I mean, this is a transition year on the offensive line for Notre Dame. They just had three players drafted and Tommy Kramer was in an NFL camp and I think he's on a practice squad, right? So that's four pros that aren't around this year. I understand the, again, the offensive line not playing to the same standard that y'all are used to seeing, but I mean, they lost a ton and I know nobody's feeling sorry for them because it's Notre Dame, but uh, I, I do like the guys that they've recruited at the position. So we'll see how that comes together o over time. So 
Um, quarterback room, I just don't think that they've recruited the last few years to the standard, uh, uh, to a championship-level standard. And I think that in a game against Cincinnati, who's another team that has championship aspirations, it came to the forefront in that ball game. Two unrelated questions from me. Number one, if PJ, if uh, Phil Jakovic was here and healthy this year, are we having this conversation? Number two, is Desmond Ritter as a fifth-year quarterback better than any Brian Kelly-era quarterback? Um, well, with Phil Jakovic, he was obviously a developmental guy that didn't walk in the door ready to play but showed last year at Boston College that he was capable of, of being a good quarterback. And then I think he was going to take another leap this year. He got hurt. Right. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if we're here. I think he would be Notre Dame's starter, and chances are I think he would be doing well. You know, I think that Notre Dame's got good coaches, so I think that they would they would have brought him along. Um, and then uh, um, Desmond Ritter, yeah, uh, he, isn't he getting first-round projections? I mean, yeah. So if he goes in the first round, yeah, because Notre Dame hasn't had a first-rounder under Brian right. Kelly. They haven't had a second-rounder under him either, right? So Kaiser. Kaiser going the third. Kaiser. They had Kaiser. Uh, the Kaiser went in the second. So, yeah. yeah. So that's kind of who you're up against. But, unfortunately, Kaiser went four and eight his last year. Notre Dame's really had a, a, a renaissance, a rejuvenation. It's been special what they've been able to do since that season to go from four and eight to, to uh, what they are now. And Brian Kelly had to make some tough decisions to get to that point. And it, he may have to make a couple more tough decisions to get from 11 and 12 wins to 13 or 14. But he's got them close. And I see people claim, oh, Brian Kelly's not the guy to take us to the top. Well, he's pretty damn close. And the next guy, he's starting over. I mean, like Brian Kelly, like he's got him here, man. He's just got to get him from here to here. The next guy might come in and maybe be able to change a couple small things that you would like better, but then he won't do the 80 to 5% to 90% that Brian Kelly did as well, you know? And so I like where Brian Kelly's got this program. Are they going to win the national championship this year? Probably not, but it doesn't mean that they're not in the conversation again, starting over next year and the year after and the year after, because they are, I love the way they're recruiting. I just think that he really has to, you know, we've seen Nick Saban, make changes within his program that's already succeeding to, yeah. to to keep it at the top or get it over the top. And I think that, you know, it's kind of similar to the way where Brian Kelly had to make some tough decisions and let some people go that were close to him. He might have to make some tough decisions after this season to, to make sure that Notre Dame not only can continue to win 11, 12 games, but try and win 13 or 14. Steve, what, what would you say is the toughest position to evaluate in terms of high school prospects? And maybe it's like you, it's the most hit or miss when it comes to how they actually, the career actually pans out. Is there one position that's more difficult than others? Well, I think it's quarterback. I think there are some things that can help you define if a guy's going to be good, but it's still not the end-all, be-all. And if you have the resources that Notre Dame does, you can kind of go through this checklist that I'm going to lay out. I think that – when you look at a quarterback, first you want to see if they have the physical tools to run the offense that you want to run. So for Notre Dame, it's a guy that can be dangerous with his legs, 
but also has the arm talent to really stretch the field vertically because Notre Dame recruits these big old tight ends and these big old receivers that if you get into one-on-one jump ball situations and you're chucking it 55 yards down the field, those guys can make a play, break a tackle, and they're in the end zone. You know, and and uh, uh, those. So I, I think that for Notre Dame, um, you got to have a guy that can throw the ball downfield. Everybody needs that. But um, um, you look at the way they play their juniors and senior years. You want to see a completion percentage of above sixty to sixty-five percent as a junior, and even higher as a senior, which shows you that they're seeing the field well. They're making good decisions with the football. And they're ta- from there, you want them taking care of the ball. So you want high touchdowns, low interceptions. And it's it, people listening to this are probably saying this is all obvious, but believe it or not, a lot of these guys that are being recruited are not like stat sheet fillers, you know. Uh, but the data says all the guys being drafted were. And even if you go back and look at guys that weren't heavily recruited, but they go to like a mid major or a lower group of five and then they get drafted. They fit this. Uh, they fit this uh, narrative. You know, those quarterbacks weren't didn't become good. At, they weren't late bloomers. You know, they they were always good. They were just overlooked. Um, and uh, uh, so I would also look a, a thing that I would do a deep dive on if I had the manpower is sacks taken because that means again they're processing at a high level. They're not giving up sacks uh, on the high school level. Those are things that I would chart if I was recruiting. A, a quarterback at a, at a high major, high major school. Um, so high completion percentage, low interceptions, high yards, uh, arm talent, being mobile, uh, not taking sacks. Then obviously just being a good leader, being, having those intangibles, you know, um, a place like Notre Dame, a guy that checks all those boxes, there's probably only six, six seven guys a year that'll check all those boxes. So then once you identify them, recruiting the hell out of them, making sure that, um, your head coach is staying on top of them. Your offensive coordinator is staying on top of them, staying on top of their parents, staying on top of their coaches, getting them to campus as much as they can, making them feel like they're part of it as much as they can because identifying them is only half the battle. Then you got to get them to come commit to you. And if you think they're pretty damn good, I, I, would, I would imagine if you're Notre Dame, uh, a lot of your peers think that he's pretty damn good too. So it's uh, then you got to go battle and go get it. And, you know, Lincoln Riley, he's the one leading the charge for Malachi Nelson. He's the one leading the charge for Caleb Williams. He's the one that when they're recruiting Caleb Williams, he's doing two hour film sit downs with Caleb Williams. who's a film junkie. And not only is he getting the opportunity, not only is Caleb Williams just getting the opportunity to talk two hours with Lincoln Riley, he's just obsessed with it and learning from him and talking to him, you know? And so I think the head coach now sets the tone a lot of times with, with quarterback recruits. And then your, your offensive coordinator is certainly very much involved or your quarterback's coach too. But um, that's kind of, that's kind of quarterback recruiting in a nutshell at the elite level. Okay. As the, let's take Arch Manning out of this because I don't think that's probably a realistic landing spot at this point for him. But of the other guys that they've offered in the 2023 class, how realistic is it that they get one of those? And who of those four do you think is the best? And do you think that this is a significant upgrade? So I think that they are very much in the thick of it for Dante Moore, but it's not going to be easy to land him. 
Um, but they're in the forefront. They're doing everything right with him right now from my vantage point as far as having his level of interest in Notre Dame is high. Um, at some point, they'll need to ramp it up even more because that one's going to get, you know, um, he's going to be heralded and sought after. Um, so the relationship that the Notre Dame's doing a good job with the relationship, but they're going to need to hit the gas on that um, with, with coach Kelly and, and, and just the regular contact, because it's hard for, you got to make it hard as hard as possible for this guy to say no to you because he just loves you as a person. That's, that's part of the deal. Um, I don't know as much about Nico and where Notre Dame stands talking to my colleague, Tom Loy. Sounds like Nico had to do some things to make the Notre Dame uh, offer happen off the field. And it was important for him to do those things. He did it. He got offered, he visited. Uh, so he's interested in Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame's in a really good spot for Avery Johnson. He's one of the, I mean, he's a guy that I think you're going to really see rise in the quarterback rankings. He's in our top 150 right now, um, but he's an alpha athlete competitor type that's still developing physically. Um, but I think he's awesome. I think he's a guy that uh, any team that gets him can win a lot of games with. I think Notre Dame, the visit to Notre Dame this summer blew him away. And uh, I, I would hope that Notre Dame's building on that momentum still that they created this summer for him. And then, uh, I, you know, I just know they were one of the early ones in on Jackson Arnold. He's got 13 offers now. He's eventually going to have 30 or 40. So Notre Dame kind of got a head start on some of the other blue bloods for him. And, uh, you know, so hopefully with that, they're building the best relationship with them in the, in the longest standing one. And, you know, you, you'll see where that goes. Steve, Notre Dame got off to such a good start in the 2022 class that there hasn't been a lot of action there lately. But I'm curious, they're, they're still sitting at number two in the 24-7 sports uh, team rankings. Do you think that this class can finish in the top five and, and close out with some big time targets like Z Z Xavier Nwamka, Anthony Lucas, Hero, Canoe, Emil Wagner, et cetera? Well, those are the guys that are going to dictate how high they finish. I mean, this is already a good class that's going to come in and maintain the standard uh, that they've had, which is competing for playoff berths and, and, and potentially more. And I think really the receiver room is on the rise with this group. I think that when you look at when you look at this class defensively, they're going to be big and ferocious. I mean, Joshua Burnham, Aiden Gobera, um, you know, uh, Jalen Sneed, Junior Tuya Lamaca. I mean, those are guys that I think Tyson Ford, Notre Dame is going to be a very physical defense in that front with with, with guys like that. I think Devin Moore is an absolute steal. Um, you know, Eli Raritan is a guy at tight end that's going to uh, be the next big thing when Michael Mayer's done, uh, done playing, it'll be Eli Raritan's turn to shine and, and, and be an all American. There's obviously good offensive linemen committed and, um, you know, hopefully they can hang on to Marion Walker. If you're Notre Dame, and that's another four, three guy that can stretch the field. I mean, this is, this is just a, a really good class as it is. You're just trying to get greedy now here down the stretch and get more. Nwankba, Anthony Lucas, uh, those are guys that, I'd be surprised if they're not elite players in college, you know, and so uh, Notre Dame needs more of them because they're not, they haven't won as many games as they need to yet to, to win a crystal ball. And those, those guys would certainly help them get there. And they're in a very good spot with all of those guys. They have a chance to get them all, but so Ohio state has a chance to get a Xavier Noack, but so does Iowa. And then Anthony Lucas, you know, he he's high on Alabama, A and M LSU. So, you know, we'll, we'll see, but um, it, it, Notre Dame's class is already good. 
It's already a championship caliber class, and you're just trying to get greedy down the stretch. A couple guys I wanted to ask you about real quick, and I know we've kept you way longer than we told you we would. Um, people are still listening. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a couple guys. Um, Major Everhart from Texas that they're looking at as a speedy kind of wide receiver who plays running back. And then Carson Tabachi, the kid from Utah, that's kind of a big athlete. I, I guess he could be an H-back or they could put him on defense. What do you think about those two guys? Are they worth kind of chasing those two? Yeah, if you got the scholarship, if you got the if you got the scholarships out there, I mean, those are guys that I mean have skill sets that can really be developed under under you know Coach Ballas and the staff. I mean, obviously, with Major Everhart, he's as fast a player as there is in America. And then Carson Tarbacci is like a six foot two, two hundred and twenty five pound athlete with position flexibility. All right, Steve, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us and keeping us up to date with uh, your recruiting thoughts and uh, breaking down quarterback stuff for us. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Y'all take care. All right. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for Notre Dame, Virginia Tech. First one I have for us, Eric, is will Chris Tyree return a kickoff for more than 25 yards? Well, Virginia Tech has only allowed two kickoff returns. They're 16th in the country in 18.5, but that's a small sample size. So most of those kickoffs have been going in the end zone. Um, I, I'm going to say no. I don't think Chris Tyree will return one 25 yards. He may not return any of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to say yes uh, with him going back to Virginia, but um, the more I dug into Virginia Tech's kickoff stuff with John Parker Romo, which is a great name for a kicker, uh, he's been forcing a lot of touchbacks and fair catches, so I will predict no as well. Next one, over under 65 rushing yards for Kyron Williams. He's pretty close to that with his average. Um, Virginia Tech is 61st in the country in rushing defense. And you always have to kind of look who they played at this point of the year because the numbers can be skewed. They played a good, a decent rushing team in North Carolina that's top 40, but they played Wake Forest and Middle, I mean, West Virginia and Middle Tennessee State who are ranked below 110 out of 130. And then they played an FCS school in Richmond. So I don't know that they're as good against the run as advertised. Notre Dame struggled. I think Kyron Williams gets the 65 yards. So I over, yes, whatever I was <laughs> there. Over, that's the right one. Uh, I, I'm going to go under. I, I, just, I just have my doubts on the running game. And so I just sort of need to see it with some consistency. Um, to feel confident in that. And especially, I mean, the, the more they struggle, the less I have any conviction that they're going to sort of continue to run the ball with a, a frequency that will allow them to get those gains. Now, obviously, Kyron Williams can get 65 yards on one carry. Um, so that's the danger in predicting the under on that. But, um, and, I, and I do think the offense did some decent things in the run game against Cincinnati, but not at a consistent level um, with too many sort of losses and, and no gains mixed in. Um, He's only rushed for more than 25 or more than 65 yards twice this year against Toledo with 78 and Purdue with 91. Um, so I will go with under. Next one is will Notre Dame have a positive turnover margin? Both these teams are pretty good in terms of 
um, turnover margin for the year. The thing is, Notre Dame has been bad in two games and really good in the three other games. But I would say, especially with the change at quarterback, I like Notre Dame's chances here, so I'll say yes. Yeah, I, I will go with yes as well. I don't expect Notre Dame to turn it over as much as it did against Cincinnati. Um, and I think the Irish defense will return to its forcing turnover ways. Virginia Tech has protected the football pretty well so far this season, but um, it hasn't hasn't played a defense with playmakers like Kyle Hamilton on it um, either. So I, I will I will predict a positive turnover margin for Notre Dame. Over under one and a half red zone touchdowns for Notre Dame. Red zone touchdowns. I think Notre Dame has not been in the red zone a lot this year. I think uh, that's something that I, I think works against them. So I'm going to say under. Uh, uh, I think, you know, if Notre Dame's going to have touchdowns, some of them are going to be big plays. That's kind of who Notre Dame's been this year. So under on the one and a half, even though that sounds like a low number, I think they might get some field goals, but they haven't been in the red zone much. No, yeah, they only have six red zone touchdowns in the first five games. Um, so that would equate to an under in this one if they keep on pace. I still think the offense is better suited to score on longer plays than than having method, methodical drives that, that sort of lead into the red zone and end in touchdowns. Now, maybe that changes with a different quarterback. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm interested to see. I, I think we're both sort of assuming that it's not going to be Jack Cohn. Otherwise, I don't know that Brian Kelly would have <laughs> – like not announced it. I think he would just have said it if he was going to stick with Jack Cohn. Um, but uh, I, I think that um, it's still sort of a, a big play offense um, that uh, will score most of its touchdowns outside the red zone. Next one, will Virginia Tech convert third downs at a rate better than 33%? Boy, Notre Dame has really been good all year at third down defense especially once they got past the Florida State game. Uh, and Virginia Tech isn't tearing up the world in third downs. I say, no, Virginia Tech does not um, do that at a 33.3%. And there's and, and Notre Dame, Cincinnati's offense is better than Virginia Tech's. Yeah, I think the no is the right answer on this one. Notre Dame has been really good, like you mentioned, and I'm not, even though Virginia Tech has converted at a 45.3% rate, I, I just don't think, I haven't been terribly impressed with their, with their offense. So I will, uh, I will say that Virginia Tech will not convert third downs at a rate better than 33%. And lastly, what is your final score prediction for Notre Dame, Virginia Tech? Notre Dame right now is a one point favorite. They opened up as an underdog, a small underdog. I'm going to say Notre Dame gets it done. Uh, you know, what's been interesting is there has not been one mention of enter Sandman this time. And that's all we talked about three years ago. Not we, <laughs> us two, but the media. So I'll, I'll I think they'll play um, Mr. Sandman instead in Notre Dame before <laughs> 17. The, the guys on the Inside the Garage podcast, uh, Kyle Hamilton, Cam Hart, KJ Wallace, and Connor Radigan. They did discuss Ender Sandman, and they, a couple of them were taking turns trying to like hum the tune of Enter Sand or Ender Sandman, and it was bad. And I think they were doing the wrong songs a couple times until they figured out which the right song was. 
So if you uh, are looking for a laugh, I, I would encourage checking that out. So I'm sure they're thinking of it, but I don't think it's going to be uh, anything like the uh, war chant that they had to like suffer through their entire practices before the Florida State game. So um, I am predicting Notre Dame 20, 24, Virginia Tech 21. I think Notre Dame can score just enough to beat Virginia Tech on the road. I don't think it's going to be an easy victory by any stretch. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if Virginia Tech is able to win, but I do think that Notre Dame is going to be able to bounce back. It won't be necessarily pretty, but they'll be able to to get a victory on the road at Virginia Tech. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First question is from Adam Hanaski at CPU2015. Any comment on the report by Matt Fortuna that was confirmed by Tim Priester that the offensive line and Chris Watt last year would meet with Harry Heestan for tips slash coaching? Okay. There's a lot in that question, even though it's pretty concisely worded, it's just a lot there. And, and I'm going to write about this and address this at some point, but here's what I'll, I'll say now. I, I'm not sure that all those details are what I've been able to confirm in terms of how this is being presented. And, and, and I've seen it presented in different ways, but here's what I'll share that I know. Did four players, not the entire offensive line unit, but did four players, four seniors with relationships with Harry, um, contact Harry, and work outside of the confines of the 20-hour rule in the NCAA legally and, and uh, you know, get some suggestions from a guy that they really trusted and who recruited them? Yes, I do think that that happened. Um, and what I feel confident is that Harry was not doing this to say, well, Jeff Quinn's wrong, the current offensive line coach, Here's the right way to do it. I think this was supplemental rather than, uh, hey, don't listen to him. Do do it this way. And I think it, it was a smart part on the player's part. And I think it's not something that would be unexpected uh, in certain situations. I know that there's people at certain junctures of my career that have been mentors for me where I've gone to them. Um, and asked their opinions about something and, and valued that experience. So uh, I think what how it's maybe some people are taking it is was their kind of uh, Jeff Quinn wasn't good enough and this was a way to work around and that he doesn't deserve credit for helping coach a, a um, unit that was second best in the country, according to the Joe Moore Award folks. I don't think that's the case. I think this is four guys that had a great relationship that went to the coach. Um, and I think this is something that I'm, my understanding is had Brian Kelly's endorsement. Now, again, had Chris Watt arranged this as a grad assistant, there could be some NCAA violation kind of stuff there going outside the 20 hour rule. So I, I, I don't know that there were actual practice sessions or anything like that. He could have just called Harry and said, Hey, do you mind talking to these guys? Um, and, uh, 
you know, working that way. So that that's what we know. But there's a lot of implications by this story coming out now when the offensive line is struggling. Yeah, I I have some questions about the specifics and hope to learn more. I don't know that I feel like I'm confident in everything that was happening or wasn't happening. Um, we, we had heard that guys had worked with Harry Easton leading up to the NFL draft, which to me was, is it like a natural thing? That's not an eyebrow raiser in my opinion. Um, but if it, like, say I were, I, and I, I don't know that this is the case, but if they were doing something during the summer or during the season, I, and I knew about it, I would have, I would have asked those, those, those linemen at the time, because I would have been curious about what they were doing, what they were learning, how it was helping them um, and, and why they sort of sought that advice. So um, I think there's the, the reporting or commenting about it has been a little bit strange and not, I don't know that it's been totally forthright and everything that's being uh, disclosed. So I think that's sort of left more questions than answers in my opinion. So that's why I don't know that I feel like I, I, I know exactly what has happened or what didn't happen. Um, and to me, it's, it's not surprising that those guys would, would seek, like you mentioned, seek those, seek Harry, he stands advice on things. Um, Chris Watt is a GA coaching for his first time. Like I would, it's not surprising at all that he would reach out to his former coach to get advice from him. Um, so I, I I'm hoping to learn more to, to maybe provide more insight. Now I, I don't know how and when that will happen and who is willing to talk about any of this stuff. But um, I think it's uh, certainly worth looking into um, before just sort of ruling it off hand and, and not thinking there's anything to it. Next question is from at clutch sports ND. I'm struggling with Quinn as the offensive line coach. The offensive line hasn't seemed to progress throughout the season. I know injuries account for that. Am I misplacing my concerns or should ND look for a different offensive line coach for next year? what I think is the most fair thing to do from at least my standpoint as a fan, I think you, I think that's a very measured question. I I compliment you on how you answered that, you know, so open-minded. But I think you have to let the season play out because things could change for the better or for the worse. What I will say is I don't, I think Jeff Quinn did a good job coaching the team last, uh, coaching the offensive line last year and the conditions that he has this year, I don't think he's doing a very good job. And if Brian Kelly feels at the end of the year that there are any assistant coaches that aren't able to advance this team to a, to, to coach at a level that would help them get to the playoff in 2022 and maybe win games at the 22-22 playoff. I don't think he would be hesitant to make changes, um, and I think they would be warranted. But again, I think it's kind of like, you know, uh, trying to cash in your bet in the first quarter of a game. Let's let it play out and see if they eventually are able to to get this offensive line in a better place. But I, I do not think Jeff Quinn is doing a – a good coaching job uh, with admittedly a difficult situation. Yeah. The, the concerns are fair. I, and this this certainly isn't the first time we've discussed this on the podcast. Um, The the way this offensive line is playing is unacceptable at Notre Dame. This shouldn't be the level of play that Notre Dame's offensive line should, should have, even if it's been down to four left tackles. Um, My, my point of contention all along has been that folks, 
didn't want to give Jeff Quinn um, credit uh, for the success that he's had previously. Um, and most of those folks were people who didn't think he should be hired in the first place. So there's, it's more or less confirming their bias against their original opinion. Um, that's at least my view on some of that. I think there's been a, not a lot of open minds to, to Jeff Quinn as Notre Dame's offensive line coach. Um, I think this season has been disappointing. Obviously the left tackle thing is going to cripple any offensive line, but the rest of the line hasn't been good. It's not like oh, they're, they're blocking things up right on the right side. It's just this left side just keeps getting beat. Like that's not been the case. Um, there's been issues throughout the whole offensive line. Um, but like, like you said, I, and, and we have said previously, Brian Kelly can't afford to have bad offensive lines in future years um, if he wants to win a national championship. And that's something that's eluded him. So um, he should know better than anyone else what Jeff Quinn's true deficiencies are. And if he feels like those deficiencies are holding Notre Dame back and the offensive line can get better um, and that this season is an aberration and is more of a um, – something that has been building and leading to this, then, then he has to make that decision. But um, I'm not, I'm not totally convinced yet that this, this, this is a decision that has to be made that there had that Jeff Quinn has to be fired after the season. Uh, this is certainly a poor season, but um, I, I, I don't know enough yet to, to feel confident that he can't be better than what he is now. Um, and that next year wouldn't be significantly better with, with many of the offensive linemen returning. Next question is from Chris Buckley at Topher 15. The offensive line, if Brian Kelly says it's not on the Jeff, it's not on Jeff Quinn, fine. If the current line needs to play better, great. Why hasn't there been more talk of replacing poor performing players on the line or shuffling positions? Um, well, I, I, I was the one that asked Brian Kelly about Jeff Quinn in the press conference. And I guess I expected my expectation was that he would probably defend Jeff Quinn publicly. And I don't know that that's exactly how it's playing out in private, but I think he, um, you know, he knows what Jeff's strengths and weaknesses are. And, and I think right now that he's asking all assistant coaches to, to step up their game, but let's say Brian, let's assume his answer matched his sentiments that he thinks, Jeff is doing as good a job as he can. Why not move around? Um, and I get this in my live chat every week. People want to change players. And I think that's a really natural instinct for people watching football because I think at most positions, that makes sense. You have a quarterback that's underperforming, put in a new quarterback. You have a defensive end and somebody's playing better. But in the offensive line, it's a different formula. We had Aaron Taylor on last week talking about this, our highest rated podcast, most listeners we've ever had. Um, and he was talking about continuity and, and cohesiveness. So if you pull somebody out, you have to be willing to say, starting from square one with that continuity is worth making this personnel change. The other thing is, you're running out of options. You were at your fourth string, you meaning Notre Dame, were at the fourth string offensive tackle um, on the left side. Who's behind Joe Alt? I'm not even sure at this point. Uh, but, you know, I looked at the photos of Michael Carmody's ankle and it was heavily taped and he couldn't finish. Tosh Baker is in concussion protocol. Blake Fisher 
as uh, nursing a knee injury for the rest of the season. So who are you going to put in there at left tackle? Same with guard to a certain extent. You have Zeke Carell and you have Kane Madden and you have Andrew Kostafik, who's the third best option. I know people want to see Rocco Spindler and gosh, I want to see him too because I want him to come into the interview room because he's a great interview, but there's really very limited options there. And you're not going to replace your center, Jarrett Patterson, because he's the best offensive lineman on the team and arguably a guy that's probably going to be drafted the second day in the draft if he decides to come out this year. So there's not a lot of options. And again, then you are threatening the continuity and the cohesiveness that you've been trying to build uh, while switching left tackles every week. Yeah, I, I understand the sentiment of this question. I'm not sure I, I get where the question about what, why hasn't there been more talk? <laughs> this is something we've discussed. We've been asking Brian Kelly about. I asked Brian Kelly once Blake Fisher and Michael Carmody went down after the Toledo game if, if they were going to move Jared Patterson out to left tackle at some point in the season. Then he shot it, shut it down then and shut it down again this week. And <laughs> he was pretty frank. He's like, who do you want me to play? Just tell me. I'll let you know. Like He, he doesn't feel like they have any other options on the offensive line right now. Um, and they've, other than center and, and right tackle, everyone has been rotated out at some point. Um, and all your right tackle candidates have been needed at left tackle. So that's why Josh Lug hasn't left the field. They, they don't have, they don't have a wealth of tackles because they're all needed to play left tackle. Um, Rocco Spindler isn't ready. Like you said, that's at least the Notre Dame's opinion. Um, and it's clear that they don't think John Dirksen and Quinn Carroll can give them what they need. Otherwise, they would have probably already had an opportunity to do so. Um, so they're going with three different guards right now at, for the two positions, and that's um, Andrew Kristoffic, Zeke Carell, and Kane Madden. And uh, they're going to try to figure out who's, who's healthy enough to play left tackle. And it's, it's hard to build improvement when those guys keep getting knocked out of the lineup too because they're not, they're not in, able to stay healthy and – and get better because they're going back to the training room all the time. So I'm sure this is an incredibly frustrating situation for Jeff Quinn and Brian Kelly and the players involved. Um, but they're, they're trying to make the best of it. It hasn't necessarily worked very well. I, I actually don't think the offensive line played terrible against Cincinnati. Um, I think without the turnovers, which certainly um, they had some pass rushes on those two um, interceptions that that influence the the turnovers, but the quarterbacks take better care of the football, and Notre Dame could have won that game. Um, and now we wouldn't be leaving that game saying, "Well, Notre Dame's offensive line is great," um, but uh, they could have been capable enough to to win that game. So um, there's still a lot of work for this offensive line to do, and a lot of improvement left to go. Um, but I, I I just don't see at a position that's already seen nine players play on the offensive line turning to more offensive linemen being something that's realistic. At least that's the messaging we're receiving so far. Next question is from Kevin Calabria one. Can Rocco play left tackle? Um, I think Rocco physically can do a lot of things that most freshman offensive linemen can't. I think he's not a fit for left tackle or they would have, tried him there I think he he himself would say his strengths are inside I think he could play center and I think he certainly could play guard but you're asking him to play in space which he's not used to doing um what he is used to doing is playing inside and and uh I think 
the reason Rocco isn't playing is because of potential mistakes, not that his body isn't physically mature enough or that he, from a mental standpoint, isn't physically mature enough. It's just how many mistakes are you willing to, to, uh, I, I think Rocco's going to be a starter next year, but I don't think we'll ever see him at left tackle. Yeah, th- that would be a, a, a true emergency. Now, maybe they're getting close to that with if, if Joe Alt's only healthy left tackle they have going into the game. Like you said, I'm not really sure who the next left tackle is after that. Um, pass sets from a, at the left tackle position likely aren't going to be a good situation for Rocco Spindler. That's not going to be his strength. Um, if he was a veteran with more experience, like you were talking about, Aaron Banks last season moving out to left tackle in a pinch that now that's something that can happen, but that's, I just don't see that as a realistic possibility for Rockman Spindler. as a freshman. Um, they're not comfortable playing him at his best position yet. Um, so I don't know that a left tackle would be a better option for him. Next question is from Michael Shea at Notre Dame 52 is Tommy Reese. The answer at offensive coordinator is his play calling too conservative. Will Notre Dame ever land that five-star quarterback that we all desire? Okay, um, is Tommy Reese the answer? I would say he's probably the answer three or four years from now. Um, I When Brian promoted him from Chip Long after the 2019 season to offensive coordinator, I thought that was going to be a hire that defined Brian Kelly's stretch run as head coach. And what, what I'm seeing from Tommy Reese is a guy that does show some potential and does show his inexperience. So when is that move going to be worth it? Um, And I can't answer that right now, but the thing that seems to happen and, and he, and he's navigating a difficult experience right now, but if you had a more seasoned guy, would he be better at it? It seems like to me when Tom's Tommy is in a difficult situation, sometimes he slides into a comfort zone and sometimes he has to get out of that to get out of these difficult situations. Is he too conservative? If if by meaning getting back into his comfort zone, yes, I would say that. Overall, I don't think I would call his play calling conservative. I think he's got some really good ideas and ideas that he's not able to execute because of what's going on with the offensive line. And Willie, what what was the third part of that question about recruiting a top quarterback? Yeah, five-star quarterback. We'll know in the 2023 cycle. Yeah, I mean, that was part of the reason we had Steve Wiltfong on today's podcast, because that is a very important thing for Notre Dame. Um, and, and maybe they can pull it off in the 2022 cycle as well with Walker Howard being a potential option. Um, as for Tommy Reese, uh, a terrible offensive line is going to make any play caller look worse. Um, I've said this previously that I don't think he expected the offensive line to be this bad. Um, so he's probably had to adjust the offense more than anticipated. Now, that's just my outside perspective. That's not something. Tommy Reese has told me or anything like that, but that's just the the sense that I've gotten just by watching the way the offense has sort of approached the first couple of games and then sort of had to adapt on the fly. It seemed like it's was adjusting to like, Oh man, our our offensive line isn't as good as we thought it could be. 
Now, maybe a more experienced offensive coordinator would have recognized that sooner and had a better plan and better, better ideas to avoid or to get around that. Tommy Reese um, wants Notre Dame's offensive line to be great, and he believes that's a very important part of Notre Dame's offense having success. Um, so I, I think in terms of being too conservative, I, I, I don't get that. I mean, there's certainly been some running plays that you're like, why did they run it there? But never running the ball isn't going to help an offensive line that's second to last in the country in sacks allowed. So um, I, I've said before that there needs to be more creativity in the running game. They have to find ways to get get some yards, some cheap yards that doesn't require all five offensive linemen to make great blocks. Um, and that's not easy, but there's there's got to be ways that they can sort of draw some things up, and, and that probably could include getting the wide receivers involved. I, I feel like a broken record because some of the issues that they're having are re- repeating, and, and I don't know that my answers are, are, are very different than ones I've offered before, but that's that's sort of how I, I view the offensive coordinator. Uh, his performance this year and, and what Tommy Reese has been dealing with. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. Do you think Tommy Reese is forcing the run game too much down 10 in the fourth quarter on our own 20? He ran on first down, no sense of urgency or how about some up tempo play? He may be great one day, but can you honestly say his, with his inexperience, he can win a national championship in the next five years? Um, I, I don't think that the, he's gone to the run too much in that if you are one-dimensional and you can't protect your quarterback, if you're not even going to pretend to have a running game, you're asking for more sacks. Now, again, maybe with Drew Pine, um, he's maybe not as susceptible to that. We don't have as large of a sample size to kind of measure that, but I would still not abandon the run game. Um, the Marie, the question that you were asking about um, being on the 20 on first down and running, I don't recall the play. Um, I don't remember if that was a good play or not, so I can't I can't answer that. Tempo, um, why not? I mean, I think there's there's always room to do that at some point. I don't think a steady diet of it is good at this point for this team, but I certainly think there's drives. We're changing things up against the defense. It would make sense. Can Tommy Reese help them win a national championship in the next five years? Um, you know, the thing about it is I think he is learning a lot during these first couple of years, you know, what he's able to do with that and going against some really good defensive coordinators. Um I, I, I honestly, I think if he doesn't show that he can help them get to at least the cusp of that in the next, in 22 or 23, he won't have the opportunity to uh, show that he can do it in five years. I think that's, Brian Kelly wants to win that national championship. And I don't think anybody is sacred in terms of keeping on the staff just because uh, there's a past relationship. Yeah, I don't know if I'm clinging too much to one word, but I don't think his inexperience will ha- has an impact on his ability to win a national championship in the next five years because he will have more experience in the next five years. Um, I, I looked at Clemson, and when they won the national championship in 2016, Tony Elliott was 37 and Jeff Scott was 36. Now, granted, they were co-offensive coordinators, so maybe that makes it easier. 
but that was only their second year as co-offensive coordinators and they didn't have coordinator experience prior to that. So um, I, I don't think you have to be the most experienced player to win a national champ or to most experienced coordinator to win a national championship. If you have the right guys in place um, in terms of running too much, only th- I, I wanted some statistics to sort of have some uh, something to, to quantify how much they're running the ball. Only 35 teams have fewer rushes than Notre Dame, and 11 of those teams have only played in four games, so they've played in one less game than Notre Dame. And then you sort of add the fact that Notre Dame has allowed 23 sacks, which is an an incredible amount. Those all count as rushes, so those aren't running plays. They're not running the ball in those situations, but they're they're counting as as rushes. Now that counts the same for everyone else, but Notre Dame is giving up an abnormal amount of, of sacks compared to other teams as well. So I don't think they've been overloaded on design runs. Um, could they be sprinkled in, in throughout the game better? I think that's, that, that is true. Um, have there been a few occasions that there have been some sort of mystifyingly dumb running calls? Yes, I, I, I would agree with that, but I think Tommy Reese is trying to fill it out while protecting the offensive line. And that has not been an easy thing to do. Um, the up-tempo stuff, I'm not sure that the offensive line can handle that, at least in p- pass protection, they and the quarterback need to, need the time to evaluate the defense to know what's coming at them. And so I'm not sure that up-tempo helps them as much. Now, maybe defenses don't do as much of the games that they've been doing in an up-tempo against an up-tempo offense, but I'm not sure that's the case. So to me, I don't think that's – to me, you have to have a competent and confident offensive line to run an up-tempo offense. I don't think Notre Dame is at that point right now. Next question is from Dan Spillman at Spillman underscore Dan. Was there anything in fall camp that alerts you to these offensive problems? Well, I mean, even going back to the spring game, the defense dominated in that game. Now, again, some of that is, you know, if you breathe on somebody, it's a sack and the, and right. the whistle blows. In the scrimmages that we saw in the fall, the defense kind of dominated those as well. But we also, I was trying to kind of grade on a curve there in that Jarrett Patterson wasn't around in the spring and neither was Kane Mad for that ant, uh, for that matter. And so I felt like there was going to be kind of a breaking in period of this offensive line getting used to each other, to the depths of the way they're struggling now. Again, I didn't anticipate Blake Fisher getting hurt in the first I'd say even if he were playing, this would be a below average offensive line. Um, so I I underestimated how much they would struggle. Is there another part of that question? Nope, that was it. That's I, it. I, I, I don't remember seeing Notre Dame run the ball well, but I sort of chalked that up to not focusing on it much during the few practices that we attended. I didn't read too much into that. The thing that I really read wrong was Jack Cohn's lack of mobility in the pocket. I didn't think it was going to be a weakness necessarily. And uh, I was proven wrong pretty quickly. Just watching the first game, I, I could just sort of sense like, man, he's, he just can't, when he needs to get out of his spot and move to another spot, he just can't do it at a quick enough um, level to, to sort of help the offensive line the way he needs to. And that's something I just didn't pick up on. It's different. You just don't see as much at live action. They're not actually getting sacked ever when we're watching watching Notre Dame. So it's, it's a, a practices. So I think that um, maybe giving myself a little bit of a break there, but, the, and then I, obviously I did not think the offensive line was going to be this bad. Um, so I, like, I, I didn't think they were great in camp, but I thought there would be an evolution 
to that unit. And it doesn't seem that they've evolved as much as they certainly need to. Next question from Yo Murphy at Rowfield One. Brian Kelly's record versus top 10 teams is bad. How does it compare to other national champion coaches such as Lou Holtz, Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney, Jimbo Fisher, Ed Orgeron? While I seriously doubt it, perhaps other coaches have struggled versus top 10 teams before breaking through. Did you Tyler, do the, re- did you do the research? Because I did. You go ahead and answer that, and then I'll <laughs> chime in. Okay. Uh, so I tried to do this based off of, like, Guys, when they were at the program where they won their, their national championship before that. So Lou Holtz, he was one in five before the national championship season of 1988 um, in his first two seasons at Notre Dame. Nick Saban was two and four before the national championship season of 2003 at LSU in his first three seasons. Um, Dabo Sweeney was eight and five before the national championship season of 2016. Um, that included a three and one record the year prior. Uh, Jimbo Fisher was one in three at Florida state before the national championship season of 2013. And Ed Orgeron was five and three at LSU before the national championship season of 2019. Now I, I didn't include the year they won the national championship because like, to me that that wasn't them. Like obviously they beat top t- top 10 teams that year because they won the title. I wanted to sort of get a b- better glimpse of what they were before the year that won the national title. Because like, if we're trying to say, this is Brian Kelly's record now. Can he win a national title next year? That would be sort of the, the information we'd be dealing with. Well, a- again, I think um, when you compare Brian Kelly to those other coaches, you know, were they all in positions where they were building a program versus maybe taking over one? I don't think all the I don't think all the situations are right, but I will say this that that's the next step for Brian Kelly and his evolution as a coach is to win those top 10 games consistently. Now he got the Clemson victory last November, and then they lost games to Clemson and Alabama at the end of the season um, and, and lost this one to Cincinnati. Uh, He hasn't had a lot of those games at home. You know, Cincinnati was the third top 10 team to come to Notre Dame Stadium in 12 years. So most of those games have happened away or on neutral fields. So I'm not saying that um, there isn't room for improvement in those situations. There definitely is. But I don't know that it's a complete apples-to-apples comparison. Yeah, I mean, all those guys I mentioned, other than Dabo Sweeney, they won national championships pretty early on in their 10 years at those schools. so even if they were off to a bad start against top 10 teams, they were able to get the ship righted and figure things out to win that national championship um, during their 10 years. Um, Dabo was the one that had to sort of wait the longest of those guys at Clemson. Um, and like I mentioned, he was three and one the year prior to 2016. So 2015, and that included a victory against Notre Dame. Um, so before that, that, may, that would have mean he was five and four. So he was, a winning coach against top 10 teams, but, but just slightly and sort of needed to get over that hump. Now, Brian Kelly's record is worse than that. Um, and I understand that criticism. I just don't know. Obviously it's something that he needs to change to win a national championship, but I don't know that it means like, okay, everything that's happened in the last 10 years is going to prevent him from winning a, a, a national championship in a year when he has everything set up the way he needs to have it set up. So um, I, I, I don't think he's like a bad big game coach, if that makes sense. I think a lot of those times he's losing to teams that I think were better teams than his. 
Um, I, I think you could maybe argue that with Cincinnati. I think since I think there are a lot of Notre Dame fans that aren't giving Cincinnati enough credit, in my opinion. I think Cincinnati is a good team. Um, I don't think Cincinnati played great to beat Notre Dame, and Notre Dame certainly did beat itself, but I think Cincinnati could have scored a lot more points than it did as well. Um, so I think um, I think it's fair to criticize Brian Kelly on those performances in those games, but I don't think it's like uh, one like all of these fall in the same category. I think they they all sort of have to be sort of looked at differently because there's certain factors that played into uh, many of those losses. Next question is from at Jay Schatzman too. Seemed like Cincinnati had a lot of success attacking Notre Dame's defense in the 15 to 30 yard completions. Did Marcus Freeman and his staff not see this on film? What adjustments will be made, if any? Um, I don't know that it was a lack of film study on Marcus Freeman's part. I think it was you got to tip your cat to Mike Denbrock and the Cincinnati offensive staff for seeing some things in the film that they thought they could take advantage of. And not necessarily schematically, I think. Um, J.D. Bertrand has had a heck of a run to start the season. He's also, you know, if you have a tachometer and it gets into that red area on your car, that's where J.D. Bertrand is because he's played so many snaps this season because of injuries and so forth. And you wonder, I, I don't think athletically he is, he's elite athletically. I think every other way as a linebacker he is. And I think Cincinnati was able to take advantage of that on a couple of plays. And then knowing that he played so many snaps, he's played the most snaps of anybody on defense this year. I think that also was something that Cincinnati could take advantage of. So again, I don't know that it's as much of Marcus Freeman's shortcomings. And then somebody else will look at that and say, I wonder if we can, if we have personnel matchups where we could get a, really fast tight end on on him one-on-one uh build a formation where he has to uh do that i think ideally you know at some point in his career that jd would be a a better middle linebacker than a weak side linebacker but boy i don't want to take away from what he's accomplished but there are going to be mismatches and uh i think cincinnati found them yeah, matchups with Notre Dame's linebackers in pass coverage um, are going to be favorable in a lot of situations. Even Wisconsin, I think one of their longest pass plays, if not their longest pass play, was to a tight end, um, and Jack Kaiser was chasing after him. I'm not sure that it was Jack Kaiser's guy necessarily. It seemed like maybe a, a bit of a broken coverage. But um, I think, and certainly if you have a choice of targeting one of Notre Dame's safeties, it's going to be the guy that's not Kyle Hamilton. Um, so I think. You have to give Cincinnati credit for making the plays. Desmond Ritter made some nice throws down the seams, and sometimes good offenses are going to beat good defenses. Um, the touchdown to Kyle Hamilton was a bit of a fluke. He was like in good position, but ended up in bad position because it was a poor throw. Um, so I, I think I think I don't think this is like something that is necessarily a br- blueprint um, for opposing teams. So I think opposing teams will try to do it. I just don't think it won't be it will it will be as easy as Cincinnati made it look at times. Um, my my biggest criticism of the Notre Dame defense is while it's played well for very well for big chunks of games, I, I, it has a tendency of just giving up a backbreaking drive when it needs a stop. 
um, whether it was the the last Cincinnati drive at the end of the first half, um, the, the Cincinnati drive that sort of sealed the game with Desmond Ritter's touchdown run. Um, those were two huge drives. Now, obviously, there's so much pressure being put on the defense because they're being asked to make stops all game long because the offense isn't isn't playing to the level it needs to be. Um, but that that has been disappointing to me that despite playing so well, they just seem to crack at the wrong moments that have really hurt them in certain games. Next question is from Cheryl Rousseau at Cheryl Bunch of Numbers. How is it? How is Virginia Tech's offensive line compared to Notre Dame's defensive line, and how is Virginia Tech's defensive line? Let's start with Virginia Tech's defensive line. They have 16 sacks on the season in terms of sacks per game. Or, or I'm sorry, they're 16th in sacks per game nationally, which is the best on Notre Dame's schedule. Anybody they are going to play or that they uh, have played. Um, so that's going to be a difficult matchup because that's what they do well, and Notre Dame doesn't do well at preventing that. So I think that makes the decision to go with Drew Pine over Jack Cohn easier. In terms of Virginia Tech's offensive line versus Notre Dame's defensive line, I think that's a mismatch in Notre Dame's favor. You know, Virginia Tech is 88th in the country in rushing offense. They're 90th in sacks allowed. West Virginia sacked uh, Braxton Burmeister six times. Um, so I think that um, I think that's a good matchup for each of the defensive lines. I think they each have an advantage there. Yeah, I think Notre Dame's defensive line should should definitely win the matchup against Virginia Tech's offensive line. Um, and the Virginia Tech defensive line will certainly test Notre Dame's offensive line. Uh, defensive ends Taiwan Garbutt and Amari Barno are good pass rushers, and Dax Hollyfield is a good blitzer. Um, so I think that they could present some problems. Um, Notre Dame's One of Notre Dame's biggest issues in pass protection is handling stunts, where and it's typically a defensive tackle slanting outside and then a defensive end wrapping in behind him. And then the, the interior guards not being able to slide back off and protecting them. And then also sort of delayed blitzes from the linebacker spots where they, they sort of watch Notre Dame's pass pro get set and then realize that, okay, if I blitz Jack Cohn's not going to get away from me. So I'm going to go ahead and do that now. Um, and that has put Notre Dame in bad situations. Now they certainly are getting beaten one-on-one situations as well, but if they clean up those, those one-on-one situations will, will not be, magnified as much because they just won't be giving up as many sacks. So um, Notre Dame has a lot of work to do on that. Um, and Virginia Tech's offense isn't going to necessarily be, or defense isn't going to be an easy, easy uh, opponent to do that against. Next question is from Andrew Barlow at Barl Andrew. What is a coach or trainer's role in determining the difference between warrior grit and I'm hiding your helmet because you are about to permanently damage your body situation? Watching all-world Michael Mayer keep playing when obviously injured was stressful. Well, coaches are supposed to stay out of it. Um, it's supposed to be up to the trainers slash team doctors, especially if it's a head injury, which that wasn't. That was a groin or an adductor strain, adductor muscle strain. Um, so I think some of it is the player being maybe honest with the trainer and the doctor uh, so forth, but the trainers and the doctors have the final word. So, yeah, the line is if the player can do more damage to his, to his injury by continuing to play, you got to get him out of the game. 
Whereas if it's a pain tolerance issue, then, then I'm okay with the trainers letting the player sort of decide if they can push through that issue they're dealing with where the coach I think comes into play is if he's compromised and not playing to the level where you need him to play, you have to pull him because you might be doing more harm than good to the team. Um, so that's sort of the, the line they have to walk. Michael Mayer was still making catches when he was hobbled. Um, I, he certainly wasn't playing to his peak and probably couldn't run as many routes as he would normally be able to, but he was still able to give them enough that they felt like um, keeping him out there was the right choice. Next question is from Baba Ganoush uh, at PLACT underscore ITFDB. It's a bit of a long one. 2021 is eerily shaping up like 2016, but in a different order. The first game goes to overtime. Notre Dame wins, but the opponent is worse than that game portrayed. Instead of defensive issues like 2016, the offense is broken and can't be fixed. Speculation is that BK's nepotism has reared its ugly head again, and Quinn is responsible for the failure of the offensive line to execute, fair or not. Looking back, the first four wins were versus really bad teams. I'm seeing a 5-7 and seven finish with lots of close, close losses and at least one embarrassing blowout. Thoughts? Well, Bob Ganoush, I think that's interesting um, theory. First of all, I have I, I want to nitpick the term nepotism. I, I mean, if Pocky Kelly were the top, <laughs> right, yeah. that's kind of the definition of it. That you've hired somebody that you've worked with before and you've had success with before, I don't consider nepotism. I think because Brian Van that's, Gorder... That, that's how coaching works. It's, it's all over yeah. coaching. Yeah, it's all over coaching. So, I mean, I think it's a neat to have a mix of people that you're familiar with and people that you're not familiar with. I think you you benefit by having a blend of that. But I think all unfamiliar people isn't good. And I think maybe all familiar people isn't good either. But so I, I kind of got lost on the nepotism part. I don't know why we flashed instantly to 2016. I think it also started kind of how 2018 did all the, and they changed quarterbacks, um, you know, about this juncture in the season and there was a big takeoff. I'm not, I'm not predicting that. I just think the teams are built different. The culture is different. And I think that culture is a safety net that prevents you from getting the five and seven without some disastrous injuries. So I, I am not predicting, you know, a five and seven finish. That's my thought. And you can certainly chime back in and remind me that I'm wrong if, if you're right at the end of the year. Yeah, I think people want to, like, relate the vein, like to, to the nepotism point where it's not nepotism exactly, obviously, because it's not family. But the Van Gorder and Quinn comparisons to me are a bit of a reach. I think this, this is the first season where the offensive line has been a serious problem whereas the defense was struggling under Van Gorder prior to 2016. Now, if Quinn returns next year and the first four games of next season are terrible on the offensive line, that would be more of a parallel to 2016, in my opinion. Um, I think in terms of the five and seven prediction, I think you're being extremely pessimistic as a Notre Dame fan, um, which there are many of when, when Notre Dame struggles, um, especially in big games. Uh, I think Notre Dame's defense is too good to allow that to happen. Um, and the, the opponents that they're going to play are not good enough to make Notre Dame pay for it. Uh, like Cincinnati obviously did, but I, I think Cincinnati is vastly better than everyone else on Notre Dame's schedule. Um, I believe there's room for this offense to improve. I don't know how much it's going to improve, but it can play better with more cohesion and a clear plan behind a quarterback. I think some people, I mean, the, the, the 
conversation has moved to quarterback some this week. One, because Brian Kelly is moving the conversation there because he's willing to potentially change quarterbacks. But I, I, I do think the quarterback does matter. I don't think people want to give that credit. And I also think Jack Cohn could have been more successful behind him, a better offensive line, but it turned out that this offensive line couldn't do what it needed to do to protect Jack Cohn. And he wasn't going to be able to help this offensive line to the level he needed to, to make this offense work the way it needed to. So it's sort of been a worst case scenario for Notre Dame's offense with the offensive line playing poorly with someone like Jack Cohn being your starting quarterback. And now they're trying to figure out a way to, to move beyond that and figure out a path forward, which we believe will not be with Jack Cohn as the starting quarterback. Last question is from ND underscore Tanner. What are your thoughts on teams replacing their nicknames like the Redskins who are now the Washington football team and the Cleveland Indians becoming the guardians next season? Do you see Notre Dame ever having to change the fighting Irish nickname? You know, the, this kind of falls into the category of uniforms and band <laughs> stuff where I don't have a strong opinion. Um, and, and where that probably comes from with me is, you know, my litmus test is I'm according to uh, ancestry.com. I'm basically 50% Norwegian and 50% Italian with a few other things mixed in. I had immigrant parent and grandparents on each side. So it's, it's pretty clear. So I, I look at those and there are some high school and maybe lower level teams where they're the fighting Norsemen. I don't know anybody that has named their team, the fighting Italians, but um, <laughs> would that, it, I actually would take some pride in that. I, I would say, Oh, I want to root for them because that's half of my heritage. And so, but I, I can appreciate that other people might be offended um, especially some of the rituals that happened with the Native American stuff, you know, with, a, you know, 19-year-old kid dressed up like a Native American, you know, and, and, not, and it's not universal offense. The Seminole tribe loves Florida State having that nickname. So I, as far as getting to your answer about the fighting Irish, I don't think we ran a weird story earlier this year where there was some survey and I, I call those tourist stories. I, I didn't have any, any, I didn't want to have anything to do with that. I, I think the fighting Irish are here to stay. Yeah, that Eric and I didn't write anything about that, that survey, because, well, I can't speak for Eric, but I had many questions about how ahead, speak for me. <laughs> I had many questions about how the survey was conducted and, and wasn't certainly interested in pursuing that. Um, but Notre Dame did release a statement to the Indy Star on the matter with a strong defense of its mascot. Um, I'll read a, one of the quotes. Our symbols stand as a celebratory representations of a genuine Irish heritage at Notre Dame, a heritage that we regard with respect, loyalty, and affection. Um, the idea is that the actual, and this is me speaking now, the idea is that the actual Irish descendants um, were the ones who embraced that name at Notre Dame and the fighting spirit that it represented. So, um, that survey, not long after that, removed its result of the of offensive mascots. I don't know how it happened. Like, my, my wonder is, like, well, if you ask someone to name offensive mascots, that means they have to find offense to something to, to answer the question. And so, like, you're, there's only so many you're going to choose. Like, you're not going to put a team called the Panthers on there because who's going to be offended by that? So, they're, if they're trying to f 
figure out, well, which of these are offensive? I think it was fourth most offensive based off the survey, but the survey even deleted its, its post. So I, I, it, it seems pretty dubious, its responses. I, I don't have an issue with teams like the Redskins and the Indians changing their mascots and names. Um, I am a f- fan of the Blackhawks. Um, I would not be upset if they felt they needed to change their name. Um, I don't think there has been as big of an outcry um, about that team name as there have been others and the, and the symbolism that other programs use. So I think um, certainly they're, they're, these names and words mean a lot to certain people, and I think you have to listen to those people. Um, I just don't know that there's, there are Irish people that are, are out crying that uh, fighting Irish um, like miss mislabels them. It's not, it's not the brawling Irish it's fighting Irish. It's, it's not, it's not specifically literal. It is also figurative in, in sort of the fighting spirit of the Irish and, and what they've overcome. I, right. I'm offended by the Cal Santa Cruz banana slugs. You only like apple slugs. That's right. Any other kind of slugs is offensive to me. (laughs) All right. That's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We'll be back next week with a Virginia Tech review and some bi-week discussion. Until then, stick with NDInsider.com for all your Notre Dame football pregame and postgame coverage needs. (laughs) 